everyone, and welcome to Unspooled, Unspooled Top 3. three. Uh, today's guest on Top 3 is Tom Sharpling. Now, if you don't know Tom Sharpling, I think of him as one of the premier uh, great hosts. Uh, he has a show called Best Show, which was on WFMU, which was a staple of comedy radio uh for such a long time. It's now an amazing podcast. He also hosts Double Threat with Julie Klausner, uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. But like other guests that we've had on the show already, um, they have experience as writers and directors and producers. And Tom also has been behind some amazing uh, music videos. He's such an interesting guy. And this book, the book is called It Never Ends. And what I love about this book is it's about the journey. I think a lot of times, People feel like, oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. And they're always so focused on the end result. And what's kind of beautiful about this book is Tom took a very unconventional path to being who he is. Uh, right now, he has directed music videos. He has been an on-air personality. He has written and actually executive produced a giant television show, uh, which is Monk. He has so many different uh, experiences as a creator but how he got there is probably unlike anybody else's journey. And that's what I really, really love about this book is that I know Tom for so many years. And reading this book, I felt like I was meeting him for the first time because there's so many things I didn't actually know. So it's really inspirational for those out there who want to maybe get into this business and feel like they have to find a, an outlet for their voice. And also, if you're just a huge fan of Best Show, which I certainly am, it really helps uh, understand this world that Tom has created. It's just an excellent, excellent book. And I'm so excited, Amy, for the two of us to sit down and talk to him today. Because if there's one thing you know about Tom is he is very opinionated and he has come today with a top three that's very specific, not just his top three, but this is his musical top three, his favorite three films revolving music, because a lot of Tom's life revolves around music. So we thought that would be a really fun way to kind of look at his top three. Tom, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you talk about some of your favorite uh, musicals and movies about music, because I feel like you are one of the people, when you were on WFMU, who would introduce me to some bands and things that I had no idea about, and then got me so pumped about these, you know, smaller artists or artists that just kind of, I think, often get maybe a little forgotten about. Yeah, that's one of the ways I fell in love with radio, I guess, because it was a means of me learning about music. And it was also a way for me to hear DJs and comedy and all that. And it kind of was a home for both of my interests that have been my interests my entire life. It's so funny when you think like the things when you're 11, you like music and you like comedy and then you turn around and that's still all you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and that's, I mean, that's why I'm really excited to talk to you in particular about your favorite movie musicals, because yes, you love music. Yes, you love comedy. But yes, you've also directed music videos. And just kind of right at the top of this, I mean, do you consider your music videos, music videos themselves, a different art form than a musical? It's It's so interesting with the music video part of it, because they are... I mean, they're commercials ultimately, and <laughs> I started making them in the wrong era, the era when you could get 
$5,000 to do one. So everything <laughs> was always run through the filter of how can we pull this off where my favorite musicals, that is clearly not a concern for, for, for musicals where it's just like, whatever you guys need to make this amazing, go do it. And those <laughs> are the best musical sequences in classical classic musicals yeah you don't have that that, you you don't have that mace money uh of course i love to reference mace as the uh, end all be all of music video uh money but (laughs) you're talking about him because he has the dollar sign in his name so you're like obviously that mace money we're in this world right now where everyone is working on this like budget right it's like oh well we're doing this as a favor oh can we what can you get done here and i think that sometimes that ingenuity creates something that's really fascinating. I love your videos. And because in a way they are not a $5 million video, they actually are way more interesting because it's sort of like you have, you're forced to find ways to do things that are cool with a very limited, uh, scope. Yeah. I mean, that was always the trick when we did the a video for the new pornographers for a song called move. And we decided to, um, just see like how far we could push the confines of a $6,000 budget that I think I threw two of the six in out of pocket also. <laughs> so it's fun when you're a co-financier of the production as well. Um, but we had like five shoot days on that for $6,000. And and you you find other angles where it's like, if we can't have money, then let's see what talent we can get. And talent is there's an abundance of talent. So then you just start asking people, Hey, you want to jump in on this? It'll take two hours. You want to be in the video? And they're like, yeah, I'll do it. Sure. I got nothing to do that day. And when we did that video, it's so funny. We were doing a, there's a press conference in it. And basically we did a, a video that was um, as if it was a biopic of the new pornographers, like a fictionalized biopic. So there was a press conference scene and, uh, Wyatt Sinak was one of the members of the the band. It was portraying one of the members of the band. And he was like, hey, can uh, like I'm hanging out with Donald Glover today. Can he come by and maybe be in a scene? I'm like, yeah, sure. And it's just so funny. Like things like that happen to where like I didn't even know that was happening that day. It's like, yeah, sure. Joel, just you just ask a question like you're in the press pool. Yeah. And then you turn around and there's there's a Donald Glover cameo i i mean that's that kind of defines uh, at least my experience i think your experience in new york we had this little community and what i really love about your book is you know i consider you a friend i know you and everything in this book puts it in a way where i i got to see you in a very whole way because you are somebody who like you said you started out loving comedy and music you found your you kind of found your voice on on the radio but then you got a tv writing job and and you you know, I, I always view you as somebody who is one of the original voices of podcasting as well. But now you're directing videos, you're writing books, you've written for zines, you've written for sports publications. You really have this like giant, giant scope. And I think one of the chapters that I love the most was how your fascination with the monkeys may have led to you. <laughs> performing uh, as a monkey. I mean, like, you know, it took you a while to become a performer in the book, but, you know, one uh, twist of fate here, you could have been a part of the new monkeys, right? Yes, there was an endeavor in the late 80s called the new monkeys. And I was a very troubled 18 year old who, for whatever <laughs> reason, with no discernible talent, mind you, also <laughs> decided 
yeah, let me show up and see what the audition's like. Maybe I'll get in on that. And <laughs> huge spoiler, I didn't make the cut. <laughs> Did the new monkeys ever really even come out? <laughs> oh, yeah. There was one season of it. I mean, I, I don't, maybe the new monkeys didn't make the biggest splash on television, but in my previous life as an SAT tutor, I went and taught the daughter of one of the new monkeys. And on his wow. wall, he had a Warhol print of himself as the new monkey that I believe Warhol had given him as a reward <laughs> for being one of the new monkeys. So there's a world of, of treasures you could have in your house instead of what you do have, which is cooler, like the original um, advertisement for uh, for the Velvet Underground on your wall, which is that has me in awe. But it could also be a Warhol. Which would you rather have? Um, I think all things considered, I know how much I paid for the Velvet Underground ad <laughs> and I know how much a Warhol goes for. I would probably take the Warhol. <laughs> all things, knowing how what they move for now, I'd still go for the Warhol. Um, but that said, like when we asked you to name your top three movie musicals of all time, right up at the top, you said ahead. So A, you have no bitterness against the monkeys. But B, I want to ask like, you know, if a music video is an advertisement for a band, was Head an advertisement for the monkeys? Head from 1968. It is directed by Bob Revelson and based on a script written by him and Jack Nicholson. Not just a guy named Jack Nicholson, the actual Jack Nicholson. Head is insane. It stars the monkeys. I guess just picture Beatles A Hard Day's Night, except like candy colored and probably laced with acid. You can't describe this movie, so let's just have Tom talk about it. All right, now jump up and down a little jump bit, into fellas. This? Get lost what in it. it. There you go. Very good. Look, you're supposed to be dangerous, fellas. Will you work at it, please? Jump up and down Dang. a little bit. All right, there playback, please. That's better. Little action. Get lost in it. Good. That's better. We know we can be rough, but not if you get tough. Very good. Turn around a little bit. Head is uh, such an interesting movie to me because it is. It should not, by all rights, exist. When you think of the monkeys were this very commercially accepted, sanitized uh, television entity that would they'd sneakily slip things through here and there references to weed or they'd get Tim Buckley or Frank Zappa on the show to just kind of represent the the counterculture that was was growing at that point. But Head was supposed to be, as far as the studio is concerned, it's like, well, no, the, the Beatles have a hard day's night and you go make a movie of a thing. And but the, but everybody involved in Head was interested in the deconstruction of the monkeys at that point, where it's like we're going to show what a prefabricated band is in a very trippy way. And we're just going to we're we're exposing all the stuff. and. It's the opposite of what any movie studio would want when it comes to a band movie. And also co-written by Jack Nicholson, which is yes. like, a, like, I think after reading that Mike Nichols book, I really kind of understood Jack Nicholson's early career a lot better just through a little bit of how they describe him. But like the fact that he was very hands on and trying to make cool, artistic, independent things and I love that, like, you would never, I, I guess I never would picture Jack Nicholson and the monkeys being like, oh, let's make a psychedelic movie. That, that's where we are meeting halfway. But I have to imagine that Jack Nicholson is a part of getting this thing made on some level, too. 
Um, well, at this point, Jack Nicholson was was actually considering not being an actor and maybe being a behind the scenes person because it wasn't exactly happening yet to the degree that he had hoped it would be happening. Oh, interesting. So he was in with he was in with uh, Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider, who were the creators of the monkeys and went on to do five easy pieces and King of Marvin gardens and all those movies that they did in the early seventies and also produce easy rider, which is where they made all their money. And then they put their friend Jack in easy rider. And that's where he popped outside of the William castle, Roger Corman uh, type things that all those guys were in. The most revealing thing about Jack Nicholson is if you watch this Roger Corman documentary, Jack Nicholson, first of all, appears in it talking about Roger Corman and at the end of it, he starts crying, talking about how much Roger Corman meant to his life, that I would not have the life and the career I had without Roger Corman. It's a it's a shocking moment for somebody so composed like Jack Nicholson, yeah. all yeah, image. And you see. Him, yeah. But you see him reveal that, that he concedes everything to this guy. Well, I mean, as an open ended question for both of you, would you trade Jack Nicholson, the actor, you know, the body of work that we have for him for the unexplored road of Jack Nicholson, the writer, if he had kept going in this direction of making things like head. I mean, he direct, what did he direct? Drive? She's drive. He said, did you ever see that? <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't. I know it's a, it's of a really it, yeah. good movie. And that was another uh, BBS Rafelson uh, Schneider movie. It's a great movie. It's a really small character driven movie. I think he would have just been making the things he was making, but behind the camera. Yeah, because he seemed like he had like a, a a taste for, uh, you know, just a, like a count for counterculture to a certain degree. I mean, he directed four or I guess three movies and one uncredited, right? So it's Going South, The Two Jakes, and Drive. He said, "Yeah." Mm-hmm. I mean, so like it. It's interesting though. Like that early part of his career, he was. Very, I mean, I know he's associated with Easy Rider and things like that, but it's like, it feels like he was living in that kind of a world. I mean, this is, a, a, you know, it's interesting to see if he would have dug in deeper there, because the two Jakes is not necessarily that. No, uh, two Jakes was a, that, that's the, I mean, he eventually took over two Jakes, if I remember correctly. Okay. That, that it was not, he was not always supposed to be the director of it, but I think it was a matter of, I think Robert Evans was supposed to direct it. Jeez. And it was just like. Was he either going to act in it or direct it? But at a point, Evans had to get slid out of the thing entirely for it to get finished. Yeah, I mean, Jack Nicholson is even in Head. There's a, a small spot when he's kind of, they call cut on the movie, but you see the behind the scenes thing. And then the crew kind of hustles in and you see Jack Nicholson there with uh, Bob Rafelson. And then even the weirdest moment of all is that Dennis Hopper literally in the easy rider outfit is also in the background. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I always wonder when I think about head, like, can we have movies like this? Because I feel like the comedy that you see in head does exist, but I feel like I see it mostly cut up into 10 minute segments on adult swim. Like, can we ever make features like this again with the trust that the audience, like, I feel like studio executives don't trust that audiences would show up for a whole movie. That's this chaotic. Yeah, I don't know. People tend to get mad at movies that are this willfully uh, chaotic where I didn't see that mother. I never saw mother. But remember how mad everybody got at mother. And it's like they were mad that it was crazy. 
Like people get mad at crazy stuff. Well, yeah, it's it seems like don't trick me. Don't trick me on this. And I think people got mad at even drive, you know, because mm-hmm. it was like, well, we want this to be taken or we want this to be, you know, people have a, a preconceived notion of what they want. And I can imagine that with this movie, it's a little bit different because I'm sure there are monkey fans who are pure monkey fans who think of like, oh, I love them and they're really sweet the and kind. The purest and- monkey fan? I really want to picture <laughs> the purest monkey fan, the pure hearted but- monkey fan. Does the purest monkey fan even know that they're a fake band? <laughs> but I, 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 I would argue that there would be people out there that may not like the, the people just buy into the the front facing version of it because I'm looking at it and going, this movie comes out in 1968. Hard Day's Night comes out in 1964. So I'm sure there is. OK, there's definitely that is part of the equation. All right. Well, the Beatles did it. Let's do it here. And there's and there are. I mean, some similar, I mean, it's similarities in the sense that there are like these are kind of vignettes and you're really basing it on these characters. Obviously, Head is a lot more uh, trippy, but I feel like there there's an influence. There are at least the I imagine part of the financing also is like, oh, well, maybe we'll have another hard day's night or something. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I will say about head. It is truly an experimental movie. The editing in it and the the choices in it are straight up taken from 50s experimental uh, cinema. And it is it is just a legitimate psychedelic movie. The soundtrack is their best music. And even the soundtrack as an extension had this tape editing going through where they took audio from the movie and just chopped it up as if it was like a some, you know, audio experimentalism, just like a Steve Reich piece or something. It's really shocking that they pulled this off with a band that was literally outsold the Beatles and Rolling Stones for two years. I mean, I don't want to derail us by getting into my obsession with Meow Wolf, which I could talk about like all day. But Meow Wolf, you know, the art installation, they have this podcast called Too Sick because they have this in-house phrase where they ask if something is too sick. And that means like, is it so sick that it has become too sick and maybe it will be bad? Like, can a thing hit a limit of being too sick? And what I appreciate about your choices, like, you know, and, and going on to the director of, of maybe of your second choice, Moulin Rouge, Baz Luhrmann, is... I think you are a guy who prefers excess, who likes things that get a little bit too sick. And or maybe you're picking Moulin Rouge over, say, like once, which is interesting. I feel like a musical as a genre, it is the genre I think you get to be the most extravagant, to have the most excess, to get a little bit, to get chaotic and to ask audiences, appreciate. Can you go with us to this land of chaos? Absolutely. And that to me it's the it's spectacle and it's just it depends is sometimes spectacle is watching 200 people dance and sometimes spectacle is watching something be just insanely trippy it's just i i always like with musicals with so many movies i always i have this part of me that likes just the excess of it whether it's i mean paul you and i've talked about speed racer in the past i saw speed racer in imax three times and i was going by myself over and over and it just like it was like getting assaulted by a movie and i I had never experienced that degree of of kind of aggression in a movie well that's like what i think is so interesting is we're talking about this idea of pushing limits and people being upset when you push limits and there are movies like moulin rouge which I think is doing everything 
or, you know, in a, I guess in the same sphere as like head, like it is going like, we're going to go crazy. We're going to go big, but because you hide it a little bit and you put a little bit more popular music in some pretty faces in you, you jump into you, you accept it a little bit more. And I think that like, that's the, that always seems to be the difference. Like you can kind of like trick the audience. If you, if you link them in, there's something about these Baz Luhrmann films. I, I think Romeo and Juliet is like this as well, where it, it's, you bring people into something that they wouldn't necessarily be there for. Like, I don't know if Romeo and Juliet, just a simple translation, uh, brings people to the theater, but because you're we're blowing out, because Moulin Rouge is blowing it out, like you almost recreate something or make an event out of something that no one was ever expecting. And I, I like that, that balance of like, popular and excess is kind of always fascinating to me. I think Speed Racer just missed that mark. You know, I, I would even go to that movie, um, uh, not, is it Jupiter Ascending, the one with... Uh, the, with the wolf cat people? Yes. Like, yeah. I'm like, more of this, like more of these movies where, it, that's what I think film should be. Like, it should be engaging and, and off-putting. Like, I, we, I talk about 2001 all the time because I feel like that's another movie that's like, we're going to make this lo- this loud, piercing noise to you know, you're going to be uncomfortable in your seats, and I think like we don't so get that loud. that much. And that's, yeah. that shriek from the <laughs> Sentinel is so loud, and you cannot believe that they're doing that to you in a theater. It's just a straight up assault on your ears. There's no way you can take that as other other than being uncomfortable. I want to yeah. take that idea and kind of break it down because I feel like when I Think about people who love musicals. I feel like they fall into two camps. And I want to hear where you guys are. Like, there's the camp where the people prefer the musicals where, like, the songs have a reason for existing. Like, they're putting on a show. And so now it's the time when they do the show number. And they're like, that's the type of musical I like. Things are happening and the musical is part of that. There's a logic to it. And then I think there's the people who prefer the musicals where songs just are, where people just like burst into song in the middle of nowhere. There's no warning, which when you would do in real life, that freaks people out. Like, did y'all see Bad Trip? The Eric Andre movie where he like starts bursting into a song about being in love in the middle of a mall and people try to kick him. They're just like, what the hell is going on? You should not be doing this. I feel (laughs) like that divide. Do you buy into a world where people can burst in a song at any minute? Or do you buy into a world where you like the songs, but you want to see them in sort of some sort of stage structure? I don't I think those are the two main camps of audiences. I, like musicals. I, I can, I can take either. I just think if it's done, if it's done right, either one works for me. Yeah. I think it's sort of like, I think it's all about, can you buy into the premise? Like if you, if the director is like, sets the tone at the right way, then you'll go with it. Like I saw a Broadway musical, uh, probably right before COVID started, where I was like on the stage. It was like the Great Comet, and I'm forgetting the exact name of it. But it was so like you were literally up. They were performing almost in the round. Like you could be looking at the audience, and they were there, and it was so exciting. But I feel like you have to. That's where I think the you can't do halfway, and I feel like halfway is where you get in trouble, where you're winking at it, or you're not totally committed to the fact that it's a musical. I'm trying to think of bad musicals. Like what are bad musicals or, or movies that are like fueled by music. And I wonder if it's, it's well, if you maybe... say greatest showman, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll scream and throw it. <laughs> that movie's wonderful. But people said Moulin Rouge was a bad musical. I mean, so what's, sure. what's, what is your defense of it then, Tom? Well, at first I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Moulin Rouge from 2000 directed by Baz Luhrmann. 
I mean, it's kind of basic plot. Boy meets girl. Girl is a cabaret singer. Girl is coughing mysteriously. Boy is played by Ewan McGregor. Girl is played by Nicole Kidman. But they sing and they dance and they sing the best, craziest ever. Talking Madonna, DeBarge, David Bowie. It is a spectacular. When I first saw Moulin Rouge, I was, for that first 10 minutes, I remember being so confused. And then there was just like this sense of just giddiness. And I started to just laugh with it because it was not that it was funny, but it was just it was like alive and it was insane. And they know it's insane. That's the other part is like, right. There, there's these instances where whether it's the room or whatever it is where, you know, that the thing kind of slips away from people and then it becomes its own thing out of their control in one way or another. They, they knew what Baz Luhrmann knows what he's doing with this thing. It's so precise and it's so insane at the same time. And it's just kind of engineered to overwhelm you. And then it knows when it's time to kind of calm it down also as well. The movie doesn't stay at that pace the whole time. You would, there's no way anybody could, could make it through two hours at that level. It's still relatively new in Kurt Cobain's passing for them to start putting smells like teen spirit into that. And I was like, that is spectacular to just, (laughs) To like not be caught up in the reverent mythology of Nirvana and Kurt Cobain and just be like, no, screw it. It's a it's a song. It's going in here with the rest of the songs and it's taking place 100 years ago, but it's right now as well. I mean, and I I kind of find that way. I feel that way a little bit about Prince's uh, forays into movies. I mean, Under the Cherry Moon, which is a kind of a again, I don't think it totally works, but there's something really interesting about like pushing boundaries. But I I was thinking about this as you're talking and I'm like, you get into radio and you talk about this a lot in your book, but I think for people who don't know best show and you should go back and listen. And there's, uh, there's 700,000 hours of it. But what I think what you've done on that show and you talk about it in the book is you create these worlds and radio is one of these last places to create something as crazy as you know, I mean, I'm pulling this together, but like a Moulin Rouge, like you have these characters that you interact with in this town that you have created through the mythology of this show. And this world gets more and more complex and you can go to all these different places, whether it's, you know, getting a call from someone who is, you know, uh, like hiking in, in a mountain or, or a fish from a pond. You know, you, you have you have these these bigger than life personalities and radio really lets you do it again on a small budget to create this sense of uh, just go with us and trust this process. And we can go to these insane places. I mean, I pass around your CDs uh, and now Spotify playlist uh, of these bits from the show, because they are, it's so rare to kind of allow characters to go this long, this deep and this crazy, but you earn it. And I think maybe that's what we're talking about here too, is like, Yes, these things are crazy, but they are aware of where they're building at least a solid foundation to hold the crazy. And it's just not crazy for crazy's sake. Yeah. I mean, like, don't you prefer when people try things and maybe miss the mark, but they went yes. for it rather yes. than rather than self-censoring or doing what 
or pulling back because they're worried what other like other people that don't even necessarily exist. You're worried about what they're going to think about it. It's like, who cares? Just yeah. go. If, if you want to go for it, go for it. And if you want to be really small and subtle, then do that. But it's like, don't make the choices because of other people. No, that's why I always say as a critic, my favorite movies are ambitious failures. Mm-hmm. You know, those it, are the ones I want to just like dig in and plant my pole in the ground and be like, you guys need to appreciate what happened here because like what, what's one of those for you that is that you always have to defend <laughs> besides the greatest showman. I mean, where I had that moment that you were just describing with Moulin Rouge, where as soon as the white horses started coming out, dancing and beat to the intro, I was like, oh, I came here to make fun of this movie and now I'm in love with it because it's true. I think there are moments of art and and mystery and like magic that happen when somebody's not pandering to the least to 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 everyone when they make a movie that feels like it came from the brain of a crazy creator who really wanted to do this thing and got somebody to pay for it. People have always they respond to when you do that. And sometimes like think about in a non cinematic sense, like you think about when Nick Kroll and John Mulaney did the show on like too much tuna doing that yeah. thing on stage. It's literally the worst business decision you could make to say like, well, we're just going to take those two characters and have just those two characters do this too much tuna thing on stage, but they, they loved it and it was funny for them. And then they built the world and then everybody flipped out for it because it was, there's a purity to it. Yes. We're too harsh on trying to make these things be acceptable to everyone. Like there will be a cutoff of that audience. It won't be everyone's favorite thing, but I think you see that with comedy movies like MacGruber, right? MacGruber comes out. It's a, it's a super solid film, but it, it's not for everyone. And that's okay. Like it's, Oh, you know, it's like, um, and I feel like, it got shuttled off to the side and thankfully it kind of comes back. I think even pop star uh, had elements of that too. It's like my, my preconceived notion is I want it to be this, but it's not that, but it's like, uh, it's just hard. I think to convince people to embrace something that is polarizing on some level. It's polarizing. Like there will be a group of people like, I don't know why, what am I watching? Why am I watching this? I don't, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. I think think it requires a certain amount of vulnerability because you're asking people to go to like lower their guard and go somewhere. And some people worry that they're too, that they're going to look stupid or they're going to feel stupid for saying they like the thing that other people didn't like. There's a, there's just vulnerability in falling in love with things that don't make sense. Is that a fair way to say it? I mean, Amy and I have talked about this a lot. I think that very rarely do you ever say, oh, that drama sucked. But comedies Mm -hmm. are like, oh, that wasn't funny. That sucked. That was bad. And people are so quick to judge comedy as if it's a universal, like, as if there's one flavor, right? It's like, oh, well, this comedy was good or this comedy was bad. And, uh... And that to me is always tricky. It's harder to do with drama. It's like, well, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it was okay. I mean, it has to be like really bad. Like whether it's like Norman Mailer's uh, "Tough Guys Don't Dance." It's like you know, it's like you know, on that level, it's like yes, that was really bad. But you know, that's why I think we have this like kind of dearth and a lot of these VOD movies of films that are fine. It's good, fine, fine. It doesn't elicit anything, and it's and. And I think that people are so afraid to get the negative reaction with the positive reaction. It's it's and that 
it's a bummer. It's a bummer. And I think that's why we're getting more interesting stuff on TV. And for a while, why Adult Swim was one of the most interesting places, because you could create something that that really could be disconnected from the world and be 11 minutes and and didn't have to, like, pay off in a big way. It just could be like this fun experiment of of TV. I mean, but I like the way that, like, Tom is putting it on the idea of, like, vulnerability about the audience. I mean, it seems like we're yes. talking about something really vulnerable for everyone when you make a crazy piece of art. Yes, yes it's vulnerable for the, for the audience who's worried their friend's going to be like, you like that? You're stupid. Why'd you like that? And they don't have a good reason because it's, like, insane and it's hard to defend. But, but it's also really vulnerable for the creators who make it and put it out and, like, wind up getting teased for, like, a decade until people mm-hmm. come around, which is why I think it's really interesting to talk about the third film that you put on this list, All That Jazz, because, Tom, you picked a movie that's literally about a creative who gets so obsessed with putting his vision, you know, out for the world that the movie ends with him dying of a heart attack and getting zipped into a body bag. Spoiler alert. But I think that's (laughs) good context to have for this conversation. Mm -hmm. All That Jazz from 1979. It is directed by Bob Fosse, and it is basically about Bob Fosse, or a guy with a lot of Bob Fosse's admitted shortcomings he works too much he's not very nice to the people around him and at the end of the movie let's just say it he dies this movie is a landmark musical for how far it stretches the form and for how much it captures one of the men who really was the musical who defined what the musical was and is here played by Roy Scheider to be on the wire is life the rest is waiting that's very theatrical Joe yeah I know did you make it up I wish I had. You like it? Well, it's all right. It's showtime, folks. It's one. It has to be one of the most impressive cinematic feats to say, I'm such a choreographer that I'm literally going to choreograph my death. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is this is what I want my death to look like and feel like. And I want all my family to be there waving goodbye as I as I sing and dance for them before I leave. <laughs> and it's just I mean, that's as bonkers as it's it's off the charts. And it's it's amazing when a movie like that runs the table and then becomes. Just le- critically appreciated, it gets a, it gets it's up for awards, all that. It's a, it's amazing that something that something that weird could have just as easily been crumpled up and thrown away. I think it's really interesting because, you know, in reading your book, too, I think this movie speaks to who you are in the sense of you're a writer. There's a control that you want over the work that you have and you want it done right. And I think that there's a pride in in seeing work done right. So I think when you put a movie like that out in front of like the, a Hollywood community, they go, yeah, yeah, that that's me, too. I I want I, I want to go down like this. I, I always say that Tom Cruise is going to die doing a stunt and he'll be the happiest he will be because he's like, oh, yeah, when he when he launched that spacecraft up into outer space, he died doing it. But he like, you know, it's like but at least he had like you respect the fact that he did it. He would be flew the, the, you know, the space shuttle by himself. And that was awesome or whatever it is. I, let him I, get I, his I, Oscar <laughs> first, please let him do his film with Tarantino and get his Oscar first. He'll get it. He'll get it posthumously. Uh, but I do yes. think that there's this, this battle of like wanting to control, but create something so big. And I think there's this wrestling of that all the time is like, what is under your control? What's not under your control. And this is a business where we are constantly, given control and then it's taken away from us too. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why it's, it's funny that 
my television writing career started almost exactly when, give or take a year, when I started doing the best show. And it just gave me a thing that if you're writing for television or movies or whatever, or participating in any large scale thing, the buck generally does not stop with you. There's a hundred people working on the thing and there's usually somebody over you. But then like I get to do this radio show and the buck does stop with me. And that was like, that helped me mentally get through years of writing for TV where I, I think it helped me just be like, okay, well, this is not where this, I am a part of a larger thing when I write for TV shows but I do have this other thing that I get complete satisfaction from. And, but I also say what's so interesting about this, the show that you wrote for, for many years is monk, which is somebody who has an obsessive compulsive disorder too. And that's another, like, so that's another character who wants, you know, it's a very interesting character to kind of imagine write for too. You're trying to create something, control something. And this is a character who is all about creating control around them as well. That must've been I mean, kind of fun to lean into that as a personality trait, I imagine, too. Yeah, it, it, that was look, that was such a fun job. And the whole thing that made that fun, though, it really is being in that room with the other writers who were were fun to hang out with every day. And then it was knowing that when we wrote something, Tony Shalhoub would dedicate himself to it completely. He's like the best guy there is. And he would go all in on whatever we came up with. That's like the greatest gift you could ever get as a writer is to have this, the star of the show be like, yeah, whatever you guys want to try, just as long as it, long as I have an entry point as an actor, I will try whatever you guys want to try. I'm up for it. And it's like, that's, that's so generous and so more generally out of the norm where actors are going to bring their own ego into things and and their own ideas into things. It just like, it, it made it so much fun to have, to be writing for that guy. I love that. It, that makes me want to ask you a really tricky, hard, impossible question. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. Tricky, okay. hard and impossible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the I'm unholy ready. Trinity. Um, if you, could pick your own farewell song to go out singing, what would it be? Hmm. Probably uh, Yakety Sax. (laughs) (laughs) I'd end my life like Benny Hill. (laughs) I would just keep running off into the horizon chasing that old man. <laughs> well, as long as you didn't say my way, I think we can. I think no. we can shake hands and make that happen. Yes. Okay. Yakety sacks. It is. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm excited about these picks, and I feel like these are three interesting films. Probably one that people have seen or familiar with, and I think the other two are probably a little bit more on the side, and and uh, and I think they all do share one common denominator, which is each one of them is so creator driven, right? Like they really are like the singularly voiced. Um, and, and I think, you know, as we talk about all this sort of stuff, that's what I think is sometimes missing in the things that we all miss. It's like when you take a shot and you miss, or it's a, you know, or it doesn't fully work. 
it's normally the work of a very competent, interesting director who's trying to like get their voice out there. And I think a lot of the times now, the biggest movies are either noted to death or group written or group, you know, things are taken away. And, uh, and that's why I will always, I will go to the mat for a movie like Aquaman, one million percent, because I'm like, this is what he wanted to make. And it's insane. And you have Nicole Kidman fighting like people in, you know, water storm, stormtrooper suits. And, you know, you have a drum, play, you have a drum playing octopus in a ring of fire, you know, I'm like underwater. And I'm like, I love that. And I feel like to continue to kind of embrace and figure out ways you can kind of make a commercial success like uh, a Moulin Rouge or a critical success like uh, all that jazz. And then, uh, you know, I feel like those are the ones that are few and far between because I think a lot more of them fall in the the camp of head, which is like, no, no, you got to watch this. Let me show this to you. Let me give this to you. And and uh, I want to continue to kind of unearth those ones that we all have to to kind of see, because I feel like the monkey's do get forgotten. And that movie is worth finding and checking out. Yeah. And sometimes those movies, when you look like, like you were saying earlier, when you look at the credits, you realize that even if this movie doesn't pop for you, you realize the significance that it led to other things that did pop for you. But do you think without head, we would have still had the new monkeys? Um, I still think so. I think the new monkeys was a straight up, the the original monkeys were gaining popularity on MTV, so then somebody was like, "Let's bring a new monkeys back. Let's <laughs> we own the monkeys. name. Let's do another one." <laughs> so, Tom, your book "It Never Ends" is out this week. I read it r- truly in maybe two sittings, and I was really nervous because when you gave me a copy of it, you said, "Hey, can you take a you know? Can you read it?" And it just flowed so wonderfully it's a beautiful coming of age story and i think it is uh there's some things in there that really are emotional i know in the book you're very cautious and protective of your audience reading it to be like all right this is going to be a downer but don't worry about it we're going to come up we're going to come out on the other side of it you 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 walk us through it but i think you know your life and if people know you from different things whether it's steven universe whether it's as a director of music videos whether it's a you know a, the host of uh you know podcasts or radio shows or even a fan of your written work it's there's so you know you've had this amazing career and i think not only is it a great memoir but it's also a great study in how to get involved in this business and how hard it is to find your little place and 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 there are rejections and there are paths not taken and there the way that you got to where you are right now is so circuitous like you couldn't say well i did this this and this you, you know and it's and i think that a lot of people always are looking for that and i think that this book is amazing because you have this amazing success but at the same time it shows how you have to kind of stick with things too and, and get through a lot. You know, there, there's a, there's a battle that we all go through and it's, and I, and we're talking about that with even creatively getting your vision out in the world. Oh yeah. No, I, I look for me personally, of course I wish things happened for me on a different timetable. Sometimes that I wish when I was in my early thirties, I was just killing it left and right. And, but it didn't happen that way, but it, it created this other thing where I have been on this slow and steady upward trend that I get to enjoy when it inches up as <laughs> I inch up <laughs> closer to death. Um, yeah. But it's just like, 
it, I, I prefer this version of it than feeling like, man, 15 years ago, I really had it cooking. Wish I could get a little <laughs> taste of that again. I'd rather have it be this kind of slow boil that the flame keeps getting uh, turned up one degree at a time. Um, I have two more things I want to ask you. The the one just being like, what made you even want to write this? Because I feel you are, you walk this line. I'm always impressed with this line that you walk, which is like, it's very much you when I hear you on a podcast or a radio show. But at the same time, I feel like you're also very private. And this book is very personal. Like, it, this is not a book of comedic essays like Tom's thoughts on, you know, CD cases. You know, yeah. you know, it's like it's, you know, it's not it's not that it, it, it is. It is a it is a personal book. And what made you want to go there or know that you you know what? Yeah, I guess what inspired you to do that? I always wanted to write a book. I've always, the books are so important to me. And I think I've kind of built them up and fetishized them into this thing that it's like, if I'm ever going to do it, I can't do the type of thing you talked about. And I guess now I'm realizing as I talk about these movies that for me, it has to be all the chips get slid in or none of the chips get slid in. Yeah. And I needed to get to a point in my life where it's like, okay, now I can tell this story. I feel comfortable enough in my own skin that I can start to conceive of the idea that other people would know some of these chapters and corners of my life that I, while I talk on the radio every week and share so much stuff, I held back a, a, an alarming amount of things uh, that I realized amount. when I started putting the book together, I realized how much I was protecting because honestly, I, Looking back, I, even though I did not put it to words, then I knew the stuff had to be told in this medium. Like this was the way yes. for me to, it needed to be told where I controlled the beginning, middle and end of the narrative. Now control just came up again. That's, this is really, <laughs> this is like a therapy session. <laughs> oh my God. I can cancel therapy next week. Uh, um, but it is that thing where I just needed, I didn't want to tell it on the radio because it would feel slightly trivialized and yeah. I wanted to tell it correctly and putting it down on paper was the way to go for me to be able to do that. There are some truly jaw dropping uh, uh, twists. I don't know. Tw I mean, twists in the sense of like, again, I consider myself a fan and a friend and I was like, whoa, I didn't know this. But you I can feel more like... than consider yourself a friend, Paul. We're friends. <laughs> I know, but I didn't want to, you, you know, I just let consider out of the equation entirely. <laughs> we are friends. So I just the wow, one I feel thing, like I was really here for a breakthrough for Paul. No, I oh, but I was huh. it was like I was turning to June and I kept on going, Oh my god, this is amazing. I was like, You gotta read this book. But it was so I just I think what I loved about it truly was that there, you know, there was this, uh, all this other stuff. And, and I thought what I thought I knew was a little bit different. And, and, uh, I think, you know, just to get us out, I just want to tell Amy, or maybe you could give her a little taste of what's in store in the book when, uh, with a Papa Roach basketball game that you oh. went to, uh, which is, this is one of my favorite things. Tom yes. wrote for slam magazine and he got one of the most plum assignments out there. Yes. I was writing for basketball magazines at that point, And, I, and I did not have a, I, I'd, I'd quit my day job. So I was trying to take that leap where you just say, I am a writer and no safe, no safety net, nothing that's going to kind of motivate me to, to push. So 
I would just say yes to any assignment I was asked. And sometimes they were kind of skin crawly and other times they were like that. And my look again, this is one of those weird things. It's like the weird movies. I, I like it's an, it was a day of excess. They were like, do you want to go? Jim beam is sponsoring this event where they had a contest where they got four people to go play basketball at Chelsea piers against Papa Roach. And, uh, to supplement the teams, each team has a Harlem Globetrotter on the respective <laughs> team. So I go to Chelsea Piers, and this is when Papa Roach were huge. This is literally when their first album was out. So I go to Chelsea Piers. No one's there. It's a complete, I'm the only media person that turned out for the thing. They slap a Jim Beam laminate on me, and then I watch the worst basketball <laughs> that has ever happened it for is, it, it, out of shape is. papa roach dudes huffing it up the court against four people from the midwest or wherever they were also <laughs> huffing up the court and then two guys who are in supreme physical condition holding back <laughs> like the harlem Globetrotters could have gotten the game over within five minutes if they just like passed it back to each other just like they'll just dunk oh. inbound it dunk it like all right there's 20 points great we're done but oh it it's was such a funny chapter it made me laugh <laughs> so hard uh it's so so great uh tom i'm so excited that, that we had you on the show to talk about your three favorite uh movie musicals they are perfect uh your book it never ends is out right now you can also listen to double threat uh, which is a podcast that you host uh co-host with julie klausner which is uh just great. You can listen to Best Show Gems anywhere you listen to podcasts. And my personal favorite, which I feel like is worth mentioning because I feel like there was a lot of energy <laughs> around it recently, uh, Meet My Friends, The Friends, uh, the Tom Sharpling uh, podcast where Tom attempts to go uh, on a, uh, a watch along of every Friends episode. And it's talk about, again, Going in a different direction, creating a world that is uh, wonderful. Meet my friends, the friends. Uh, <laughs> a very, a very, very fun listen. And so, uh, and a career of stupid choices, maybe the dumbest. Uh, hey, look, I can join you there. I have my Sylvester Stallone podcast <laughs> yes, for a while. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, thank you, Tom, for being here. This is awesome. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you both. Thank I appreciate you. it. Well, thank you, Tom. What a great way to get me excited about the movie musical. Uh, I really want to go see all that jazz now and revisit Head, which I haven't seen since high school. Uh, this got me all jazzed up. And if you want to know more about Tom, of course, you can listen to uh, The Best Show. They have an archive that is gigantic. You can listen to Double Threat, wherever podcasts are heard. But more importantly, you can get Tom's new book, It Never Ends. And if you're listening to it now, this week, I'm talking about the week of uh, July 5th, you can be checking out Tom live at virtual book events hosted by like Nathan Fielder and John Worcester and John Hodgman and Julie Klausner. Just check Sharpling on Instagram and you can see all the places where where he'll be talking to all these amazing people about his book. So it never ends available now in places where you buy books. Uh, and Amy, what a great chat. I can't wait to do more of these. I know I adore it. Happy singing and dancing, everybody. Mm-hmm.